Amen. Good morning, all. Now, some of you know that my favorite Old Testament minor prophet is Habakkuk. Who's read it recently? (laughs) Good. Well done. Yeah, if you want to know why, ask me later. But it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and one of my favorite passages comes out of Habakkuk chapter 3. Let me just read it to you this morning, just a couple of verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but as I survey the state of the world around me, and as I look at our sinful, fractured country that we live in today, that type of hopeful declaration is becoming more real and more practical every day. You know what's going on. Earthquakes, right? And hurricanes and wildfires and the threat of nuclear war and growing hatred and violence all around us. I'm beginning to ask hard questions of my own heart, to test my heart, to see how I would react if everything that I've known and treasured in my life were suddenly to be stripped away. Would I respond as Habakkuk did? Would I exult in the Lord and rejoice in the hope of my salvation no matter the consequence? How about you? When the Apostle Paul began to wrap up his letter to the Philippian church, he started with these very challenging words. He said, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command, by the way. Believers like us are called to live in a continual posture of rejoicing. Now, what does it mean to rejoice? It means to be glad. It means to delight in something, or in our case, to delight in someone. We're to be glad in all things, always delighting in our relationship with our Lord. He is to be our contentment, our satisfaction, and the source of our happiness no matter what else is going on around us. It's a command for us to take our eyes off of ourselves, to take our affections and submit them to God, and to fix our eyes on the one who has given everything for us, and to do that with joy. Now, how practical is that? In your life, in my life, how practical is that in our church? How practical is that in our families? If you're sitting here this morning and you've been justified in God's sight, which is what we've been talking about for weeks now in our study of Romans, if you've been declared righteous in his sight because he has imputed to you his righteousness, undeserved and unearned, he has simply chosen to give you his righteousness, and to declare you righteous in his sight, then you have every reason to rejoice as we sit here today. And I say that even if your fig tree and your vine and your olive branches fail. I say that even if your flocks die off and you have no calves to replace them, you have every reason to exult in the Lord and in his great promises. Amen? Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. So we're entering into a new chapter in our study, and this is always an appropriate time to stop and to look back at at where we've been. Uh, As soon as we get it up on the screen, we'll be able to show this to you. But we've been talking about the five books within the book of Romans, right? And first we worked our way through what we call the book of sin. And in the book of sin, Paul laid out his case for the total depravity of all humankind, both Jew and Gentile. And of course, that laid the case for the bad news, which then 
brings him to the good news. And we begin to see the good news in what we call the book of salvation in chapter 3, verse 21. That's where Paul pivots from the bad news to the good news, from depravity to salvation. And so here we are now diving into chapter 5, and he's been making this case for justification by faith alone. So look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to cover five verses today. Hear the word of God. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now in those first six words in verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, Paul essentially sums up the argument that he's been making so far in this book of salvation. By God's grace, the righteousness of God has been revealed from heaven and is taken hold of by men and women like us by faith, not by works, Not by obedience to the law, but by faith alone. And as we saw over the last few weeks, the kind of faith that Abraham had when he was tested, who simply trusted in God and trusted in his promises. So Paul so far has carefully explained this idea of justification by faith alone. He's dealt with some of the objections to it, and he's defended it from the Old Testament. Now he intends to change his focus, get this now, from the righteousness of God revealed to the righteousness of God applied, from revealed to applied. In other words, now that the principle has been clearly laid out, he wants to describe for his audience and to us, by extension, the many blessings that come from being justified, the many blessings, the results that come from God declaring you righteous in his sight. So I open our time this morning by talking about joy and about rejoicing. And this is a good time to point out the obvious. Paul is a joyful man. How many of you guys knew that? More of you should know that. Raise your hand. Paul is a joyful man. In spite of all the difficulties that this apostle had to endure in his life, he is constantly rejoicing. And he is constantly telling us, as believers, that we should be rejoicing. But it always begs the question, when I see a character in the Bible who's going through so many trials and tribulations, why is he so joyful? I mean, what's the basis for his joy? And I think if, if Paul could walk through those doors right now and we ask him that question, you know what I think he'd do? He'd turn the question around on us and say, why don't you have joy? Is there any good reason not to have joy? He would say, are you justified in God's sight? Then have joy. Has, are, are your sins forgiven? Are you declared righteous? How can you not be joyful when you consider that fact? See, that's the answer to Paul's joy. It's very simple. Justification and the blessings that come from it. So here's where we're headed this morning. We're going to talk about two forms of rejoicing in the passage that we read. Number one, rejoicing in our justification, and number two, rejoicing in our tribulations, and we'll see how those two things fit together. Oh, my clicker worked. Praise the Lord. See, God is good. I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing because technology is working. Awesome. All right, so let's look at those first two verses again. You should see two blessings that come here from our justification. Number one, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. I mean, that should, that should not just wash over us. That's, a, that's an amazing truth. Number two, 
that we've obtained an introduction into this grace in which we stand. So let's, let's talk about those two things. Let's start here, first of all, with this idea that we have peace with God. Now, we have to be clear on what Paul means by that, because uh, oftentimes we have biblical words, and they're often hijacked by the culture and used in wrong ways. What does Paul mean by peace? Because folks are looking for peace today, aren't they? All over the place, all kinds of peace, psychological peace, emotional peace. Some people just want a little bit of tranquility in their life because it's just crazy out there, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about here. When Paul talks about the peace with God, he's talking about the end of hostilities between man and God. The end of hostilities between man and God. So, and this is important, we're not talking about a subjective feeling here. We're talking about an objective change in the relationship between a man and God. Not a feeling, an objective truth. So this isn't, well, I woke up this morning and I'm sort of feeling like I'm at peace with God. That is not what Paul's talking about here. What he's talking about is, I once was an enemy of God and a child of wrath, but now that hostility has been taken away. That enemy designation has been removed. And it doesn't stop there. It actually goes beyond that, and this is amazing news. It's more than just the fact that hostility has ceased between me and God. It's that now I've moved to this initiation of being his very friend. That's amazing. His child. What, what, what a transformation from guilt and condemnation by faith alone to justification and peace. Could there be greater news that you could hear this morning? If you're sitting out here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, that is the greatest news I can, I can speak to you today. That you can move from enemy designation to friend of God. That you could be, have the wrath of, of God hanging over your heads and move to being his very child, his very beloved. Man, that's good news. Now, there's an important observation that goes with this. And again, I say this primarily for anybody who's here this morning who hasn't yet trusted in Christ. Who hasn't taken hold of this, this righteousness that's been revealed from heaven. Anybody here who's not right now justified in God's sight... To be at peace with God requires that first you acknowledge that, that, that we were at war with him. That, that's the prior understanding. If we're going to say we have peace with God, we have to admit, first of all, we were at war with him at one point, right? And it's sometimes difficult to get folks to see this. Folks seem to say, well, look, my life is pretty good. I'm fairly prosperous. I'm generally happy. I know I don't hate God, so why would I ever think I'm at war with him? When you're out there talking to people in coffee houses, in the community, wherever you go, you're often going to run, run, run up against people that say that. They're like, look, I can't be an enemy of God. I don't hate him. But what does Scripture have to tell us about that? That they are enemies of God, that the wrath of God does hang over their heads. I once read this great quote. Someone said this, the problem isn't so much getting people saved as it is getting them lost. And there's some wisdom in that, right? First, getting them to understand the problem before you can bring the good news to bear upon the situation. In order to be saved, you've got to know, first of all, that you're lost. In order to have peace with God, you've got to know, first of all, that you've been at war with him since the day you were born. That's why you need to be born again. Whether you feel like you're at war with God is really irrelevant. It really doesn't make a difference. By virtue of your sin and your friendship with this world, you are an enemy of God. And you are alienated from him until that time that the gospel is applied to your heart and you receive him by faith alone. That's why the gospel is good news. That a man or woman can move from enemy to a child simply by faith. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you are at peace with God, again, I'll say it, rejoice. 
As Paul says, brothers, finally, rejoice in the Lord. You have an absolute peace because it comes from an infinite God. Nobody can take it away from you because it comes from his mighty hand. It can't be changed by circumstances because he never changes. You're no longer his enemy. You're now his beloved child. And so listen to this statement. This is important. All the power that once stood in the service of God's anger against us now stands in the service of his grace towards us. Can you think of a bigger contrast than that? All the power that once stood against us now is in your service through his grace. That's amazing stuff. So first of all, we have peace with God. Secondly, we have access to God. We now have access to God. Look at the end of verse 1. Our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so hear this this morning, and don't take it for granted. Through Christ, we've been given access to the very presence of God. The very presence of God. Access to personal fellowship with the God of the universe. To have communion with him. That's pretty amazing stuff. Think about how under the old covenant that wasn't possible. How only the high priest, only that one high priest, and only one time a year could enter into the holy of holies. To come into his throne. But we have a king's invitation now to come and approach his throne at any time. The holy of holies has been opened to us through Christ. And so God gives himself to us graciously through faith in his son. And it's a grace, Paul says, that we stand in. It's all by his grace. Meaning that believers continue to have this precious access to God by virtue of our union with Christ. And we'll continue to stand it until that day comes when he calls us home and we fully get to experience all of the promises that we've been given. It's by his grace. Now for Paul, the very thought of those two blessings, the ones you see on the screen there, cause him to rejoice greatly. These things move him to rejoice. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Here's what's going on. And I, I pray that we can really grasp this this morning as believers. That we could really follow Paul's lead here. Yes, we have peace with God now. And yes, we have full access to his throne right now. But friends, this is only the beginning. This is only a shadow of what's to come. Justification means that the final hope belongs to us. The final hope of glory is ours. Justification means a certain future hope that we have it, being glorified with Jesus. And this is what Paul understood, and this is what moved him to exult. This is what moved him to to boast. This is what moved him to greatly rejoice that the final victory over sin and death and our glorification is certain. He has a future hope of glory. Now get this now. We will actually participate in the glory of God's own glory someday. Forever. Think about that. We'll actually participate in the glory of God's own glory forever. And our glorification will ultimately glorify the God of glory. You might have to play that back on on tape to, to catch all that. But that's amazing. What Adam lost for us in the fall will be restored in full. And we will once again be what God made us to be, transformed beings without corruption, without guilt, without sin, absolutely righteous, just as he's declared. That's coming. That's the future hope. And of course, Paul rejoiced as he wrote this. And my question to you is, how can we not rejoice as we hear it? 
And this is really the big idea I want to get through. You guys are going to leave here going, I'm sick of hearing the word rejoice. But it's a truth. If you're justified, this has to mark our lives. Paul writes this and he says, I exult in this. And he would say, why are you not exulting in this? Why are you not rejoicing? Why are you letting the circumstances of your life wear you down and tear you down when you've been justified in God's sight? Rejoice. We wonder how Paul could be so full of joy. We wonder how the first century New Testament believers could be so full of joy when life was so hard. I mean, we have it so easy here in America. Even though persecution is growing here compared to the New Testament believers, we have it so easy. They had poverty and social rejection and persecution all around them. How did they manage to be joyful? How did the church grow in the midst of all that? Your answer is this. They didn't cling to this life. It was their future hope. They didn't cling to this life. They didn't cling to worldly stuff. They didn't cling to social acceptance or temporal happiness. They weren't searching for joy in the the things that we so often get distracted by, the things that make us discontent. They weren't after those things. They clung to the basics of the faith. They said, look, I'm justified before God. My sins are forgiven. I have peace with God. I have no fear of condemnation. I have a certain hope of future glory. And the result of that was biblical joy. That's our calling today. Even in the complexity of our society today, Paul would still say that's the key to true happiness, to true rejoicing. Now, with all that said, verses 3 to 5 shouldn't come as a surprise to us. But we're always shocked to our core when we see somebody say, well, you should rejoice in your sufferings. You should rejoice in the tribulations and the trials coming your way. So let's take a look at this. Look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult, same word, rejoice, boast in, glory in our tribulations. And you say, Paul, you're nuts. That's just crazy. Why would we glory in suffering? And Paul would say, listen, it's the same answer. Your justification enables you to do this. Our future hope is is designed to give us an eternal perspective on all the things that you're dealing with today. Let me say that again. Our future hope is designed to give you an eternal perspective on all the difficulties that you're dealing with in the present. All the challenges... The suffering, the trials, all of it. We're now able to see our present circumstances from the perspective of where we'll be someday. Our eternal perspective. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand Paul here, because sometimes we can get the wrong idea. Paul is not trying to convince us to be sadomasochists. To say, boy, I just really love to suffer. Boy, I just hope God will give me more and more of this. We're not to think that suffering in this life is somehow good. It's not good when cancer strikes a family. It's not good when a woman is raped or a friend is killed in a car accident or a child is abused. It's not good when a divorce happens. Paul's not trying to convince us that those types of things are good. His point is this, that as Christians, we don't suffer in vain. That's the difference. The unbeliever sees tribulation differently. He says, well, this is just bad luck. This is just random chance. It's the activities of this impersonal universe that I don't fully understand. And so I just have to bear up under it. 
But that's not how we do it as believers. That's not how we see it. We rejoice in sufferings for a number of key reasons. Number one, God promises to take our suffering and affliction and somehow, and I don't know how he does this, but somehow he shapes it into good for us. I've said it a million times. God has a massive hard drive. How he keeps track of it all and how he moves the chess pieces around the board, I don't get it. Maybe someday I'll, I'll have a partial understanding of it, but he always works it for our good. And if not in this life, certainly in the life to come, right? In tribulations, we don't see a picture of random chance. Or we don't even see a picture of an angry God being against us. We actually see in our tribulations a picture of God being for us. And that's an important switch we need to make in our minds. We cling to the promise of Genesis 50-20. What this world intends for evil against us, God means for good for us. To bring about his purpose and will. That's the whole point. This is the comfort that we turn to. This is how we can cry out, blessed be the name of the Lord in the midst of really difficult pain. Because we know somehow he's shaping it into good for us and into his purpose and will. And we cling to that. The second reason we rejoice in our sufferings is because it reminds us that this world is not our home. And that it stinks down here. Can I get an amen to that? That the pain and the difficulty of this world is not our eternal destiny. We have so much to look forward to. And our, our suffering here on earth refocuses our attention on the big picture. On God and on his faithfulness to his promises. On the comfort that we have when we turn to him. And on this future glory that we will enjoy someday. And we trust in that. Know this, just in case you still feel like, I want, I'm going to shake my fist at God because I'm really upset at what I'm going through right now. Just understand this. He's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't done himself. That's important to understand. Consider how Jesus models this for you and for me. He experienced constant affliction and persecution and suffering, yet he kept his focus on the bigger picture, didn't he? Kept his focus on the eternal picture. Always pleasing the Father. Always doing His will. Always serving others. And as the author of Hebrews says, He endured the cross and He despised its shame. Why? For the joy set before Him. For the joy set before Him. For the joy of saving you and saving me. He saw the big picture. Man, if you think you're going through as much as Jesus went through, we should talk after the service. He modeled this for you. Persecution. Affliction. Dying on a cross for the joy set before him, for the big picture. And he was rewarded, wasn't he? Is there a reward coming for us? Absolutely. He was rewarded. He was, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, given the name above all names, so that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And we'll have our reward someday as well. And the next verse in Hebrews 12 says this, Consider Jesus who endured such hostility so that you, believer, will not grow weary and lose heart. How many of you guys feel like sometimes I'm just tired? I'm just, I'm weary of all this life. So much pain, more suffering. Why is it always happening to me? And the author of Hebrews says, Consider Jesus who endured such hostility so that you will persevere, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
Consider also, as I said earlier, that Paul isn't writing about something foreign to his life either. He suffered more than you and I did. Now, he could have grumbled. He could have complained. I always think to myself, if anybody has a right to grumble and complain, it's Paul. Here's a guy that devotes every waking hour, all of his energy, time, everything to the gospel, and he suffers greatly for it. That doesn't add up in our way of thinking, does it? We tend to think, oh, I serve God, everything goes really well. If anybody has reason to to get grumbly, it's Paul. But instead, here's what he writes in 2 Corinthians 12. You know this passage. God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast or I will rejoice or I will exult about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content, he says, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Why? For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's the third reason why we ought to exult in our tribulations. Why? Because it causes us to rely less on ourselves and more on him. Now, how many of you guys really want that? Right? that that's a, so maybe a bigger question. You say, eh, sort of like controlling things. Sort of like handling it on my own. How's that working out? Helps us to rely less on ourselves and more on Christ. Now, if you haven't found that that's true of you in the midst of trials, any of these things, let me exhort you to transform your thinking this morning. To change the way you think. To change the way you see your tribulations. Let me exhort you to submit your thinking to the truth of Scripture, which is always so wise and always so practical. Ask yourself this. Do I trust that God somehow means my current suffering for my good? Do I really trust that, that he means it for good, and can I patiently wait and watch to see how that comes to fruition? Number two, ask yourself this. Do I still have God's glory and my eternal destiny in sight as I endure this thing? Can I endure this, knowing that God's promises will never fail me? Number three, ask yourself this. Am I trying to beat this or control it in my own strength? I'm going through a hard time, but I've got it. I've got it. I'm working it out. Really? Can I yield to him in weakness so that his power can then work in me? This is the way God wants you to see your tribulations, folks. This is how he wants to work through it. Now, notice, notice in verses 3 and 4 how Paul connects our suffering with sanctification. Now, we all love this, right? Give me more trials and tribulations so I can grow. Right? It's like, yeah, I really want to go to the gym. Right? Same principle. If I don't get to the gym, I'm not growing. But it's hard to get to the gym, isn't it? Oh, I'm alone in that. Okay. <laughs> oh, I really want to grow in my faith so I can exult in my tribulations because it helps me in that. He says, we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. And perseverance brings about what? Proven character. And proven character brings about what? Hope. So tribulation sets in motion a process that develops spiritual maturity in you. Woo! Love it. It brings about perseverance and character. Let's quickly walk through those things, okay? Perseverance or endurance. When something happens in your life that's hard and painful or frustrating or disappointing, 
And by grace you turn to Christ and his power instead of growing bitter and angry and resentful. You're going to find that your faith perseveres. And over time that it grows stronger like a developing muscle. The more you persevere through trials, the more your faith grows like a developing muscle. And every time you respond to a trial biblically, that muscle of perseverance gets thicker and more resilient. And the point is ultimately to make you unbreakable in your trials and tribulations. Tribulations are like a fire that over time tempers your faith and makes it stronger and ultimately unbreakable. That's the point. Secondly, notice how Paul uses the term proven character. Proven or tested character. The Greek word there describes something that's proven under testing. The idea is that when you put metal through a fire, it comes out the other side genuine. It's tested by fire and proven to be true. That's what we want about our faith. When you go through tribulation and your faith is put on trial, and then it perseveres by the grace and power of Christ, what you get is a wonderful sense of authenticity, of genuineness. You come out of it saying, guess what? My faith is real. It's the real deal. I know it. Why? Because it's gone through the fire. It's been tested. I'm genuine. How many of you guys want that? It's going to take trial. We should all want these things, right? Unbreakable endurance. Authentic, real faith that's been tested. Finally, growth and maturity under fire and testing brings about renewed hope in us. It renews our hope. Why? Because as our faith grows and becomes more unbreakable and more genuine, we become more and more assured that we're truly children of God. Our hope is renewed. We realize, gosh, I went through this thing. Guess what? I'm not a hypocrite who's just playing around with religion. My faith is real. God has given me an assurance of that through this trial. In greater measure, we realize that God is real that he is our comforter, that he is our refuge, that he is our strength, that he hasn't left us alone, that he will work in us, and that all of his promises are trustworthy and true. Folks, the fastest way to find that is through tribulation. And so we exult in these things. We rejoice in them. God really does mean to give you assurance that you are a child of God. And tribulation is the great proving ground for that genuineness, even though we don't like it. God means it for good for you and for me. It's a scary thing to preach this message, by the way. Because you know what I'm inviting? More tribulation into my life. I Believe me, I thought about it all week. Like, If I'm going to say this, I've got to be willing to accept it. That's why my heart is being tested more and more this week. I've got to believe it myself. One last thing we need to look at, and it's absolutely beautiful. Look at verse 5. This is beautiful to behold. He says, Paul says, Hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This is God's assurance for us. Our hope that's rooted in the perseverance and genuineness of our proven faith, that hope will never disappoint us. God's fully trustworthy. You will never be disappointed. And you can know this because the Holy Spirit has come into your life and has testified to this truth by being poured out within you. Now, here's the thing. We, we have a factual historical argument that says that God loves us, right? God sent his son to die on that cross. We see that love. That's an objective fact. But what Paul's talking about here is, wait for this now, you ready? A personal experience with God. 
Don't be afraid of that. We're talking about our personal experience with God where he floods us with a, an overwhelming sense of his realness, of his presence, of his love. I mean, too many Christians, especially conservative Bible-believing Christians, I guess, were like, whoa, I'm a little afraid of that experience thing. No, this is beautiful. This is what the Spirit wants to do within you. It's okay. Embrace it. The Spirit desires to make God known to you in your heart, experientially. He desires to fill you with godly emotions and affections that are rooted in biblical truth. And this is one of the ways we know that he's real and his promises aren't going to fizzle out in the end. He's given us assurance through his spirit. Later in chapter 8, Paul's going to write this. He's going to say, The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We have this internal witness within us that floods us with love that says you indeed are a child of God. Charles Hodge, who was one of the great Princeton scholars, described it this way. He said, this experience is an exuberant communication of God's love. It does not descend upon us as drops of dew, but as a stream, which spreads itself throughout the entire soul, filling it with the consciousness of his presence and favor. The word picture is there's this really dry valley, and suddenly this this flash flood happens, and this massive amount of water comes and floods it completely. That's what God has poured lavishly into our hearts, a sense of his great love for us. There's a real personal sweetness to this, isn't there? And I know some of this is, for some of us, this is more of a struggle. We like objective facts. We like doctrine. We like all that stuff. But this is more, isn't it? This is very personal between you and the spirit who lives within you. And it's something that we should be praying for, asking God to make his presence unmistakable in our hearts to give us assurance of his great love. And by the way, as we pray that, expect tribulation to come. It will come to test you and to grow you. And by God's grace, we can rejoice in his love and use those tribulations to temper our faith. And that in turn is going to confirm in our heart that, yeah, I'm a child of God, that I'm greatly loved, that I'm greatly cared for, that he's my comforter, he's my refuge, he's my rock. And in him I trust, and his promises will never fail. Isn't that great? I want to close our time this morning just by reading a prayer to you. And it's a prayer that I I wrote out this morning in the wee hours of the morning before the sun came up. Ask my wife. And hopefully it will encapsulate for us some of what Paul is trying to communicate to us. By the way, the music team can come on up and get ready to, uh, to play. And if you want, you can close your eyes and pray this with me or... Or not, it's up to you. But let me, uh, let me give you a prayer of rejoicing here as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us so many reasons to be a joyful people. You've created a world for us to enjoy and to marvel at. And even though its perfection has long since passed away, Creation still reveals to us your power and your majesty. Lord, you've blessed us with so many comforts, things we either take for granted or wrongfully assume that we deserve. Thank you for our jobs that you provided to us, for the food that we have, for our clothing. Thank you for the homes that we live in, no matter how humble they might be. Thank you both for our cars and for our feet for rest and for sleep. Thank you for 
our spouses and our kids, even though they can be challenging, and frankly, so can we. Lord, thank you for our friends and for a church family that truly loves and cares for one another. Really, Lord, there's too many things and not enough time to list everything that you've graciously provided for us. We're grateful. And if we're not feeling grateful this morning because we've been weighed down by stuff, then, Lord, change our hearts. Lord, you've given us the joy of being used in your service. That's a big deal. Thank you for the privilege of representing you in this community, sharing the gospel with those who were lost as we once were. Keep us humble in that truth. Thank you for the ability and the gifting and the privilege of serving in your church, laboring for the glory of your kingdom, for the good of others. Thank you, Lord, for the honor of loving our neighbors and working for justice, for caring for the poor, and bringing freedom to those who are enslaved by sin. Lord, we even thank you this morning for tribulation and affliction, knowing that you mean it for our good and that you desire to see us grow to maturity and completion even through suffering. Finally, Lord, most of all, we thank you for being willing to sacrifice your son for this wretched sinner. Thank you for calling me to yourself, for breathing life into me when I was dead in my sins and trespasses, for declaring me righteous in your sight when I had absolutely no reason to deserve it. Thank you for writing our names in your book of life, by your grace, securing our place in your heart for all eternity. May the joy of our unchanging and glorious salvation shut down our grumbling and our complaining and our pity parties. May the joy of knowing you stop our lust for something more or our craving to be somewhere else. May the delight of belonging to you transform our suffering and heal our heartaches. May it calm our fears and may it strengthen our hope in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. There aren't enough words in our vocabulary, not enough time in our day to praise you as you deserve. But we fall on our knees together this morning as a body. We praise your name. We rejoice, rejoice that we sit here today justified before you. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Anybody feeling joyful out there? Amen. Let's sing about it.